Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. Today, my guest is Darian Plant, author of You've Got Some Nerve, a riveting memoir about reclaiming life after a traumatic brain injury from an attack she received while working as a prison guard. We'll learn all about her new book and her amazing journey, but first let's get the inside scoop on Darian. Darian Plant is a survivor who battled back from a traumatic brain injury and redefined herself in the wake of a horrific attack that altered the course of her life. Darian received her BS from St. Lawrence University in 2015 in mathematics and economics combined and psychology. Her master's degree in criminal justice from Boston University in 2019 and she's currently working on her doctorate degree in business administration from North Central University. She currently works as a principal revenue agent for the state of Maine, where she resides with her two adorable cats, Kanga and Rue. Darian wrote this book to create a connection with others suffering with an invisible injury and to offer them strength to build a new life post-injury. From the broken pieces, she was able to create something beautiful, and she hopes she can inspire others to do the same. To connect and learn more about Darian Plant, visit her website at darianplant.com. Well, hi, Darian. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Hi, Sherry. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking with you. To get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your book, You've Got Some Nerve. So You've Got Some Nerve is my personal account of how a brain injury drastically changed my life. My book kind of outlines my life and the trajectory that I was going before this almost random situation completely derailed everything that I had planned. And it goes through my real, raw, just unedited experiences, um, mm-hmm. what it was like for me um, as I was going through it, what I was thinking, um, what I was expecting and falling short. And just the real ups and downs of what it is like to have a brain injury and the unanswered questions and how I worked my way through that to try and regain the parts of my life that I had lost. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to share what happened and tell us a little bit about how your injury changed your life? Yeah, certainly. Um, When I was 23 years old, I was working in a juvenile correctional center. And while I was working my shift, one of the inmates got up and attacked me. Mm. And it wasn't something that was out of the ordinary for where I worked. We had kind of dealt with that a lot, but it was very unusual for uh, male inmate to attack a female staff. Mm. So it was, it was incredibly violent, unfortunately. And I didn't think much of it at the time. I just kind of tried to brush it off. And just from the very beginning, doing that kind of set me on the course of this denial that, oh, it's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. And it kind of took me a while to realize the extent of the injuries that I was suffering from Mm -hmm. right after 
the assault, when I went to the emergency room, they told me, you know, it's a severe concussion, spend two weeks in a dark room, don't watch TV or be on your phone and you'll be fine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I was kind of expecting that, you know, I would just kind of sleep it off and two weeks I would be good as new. And that was far, far from the case because it was something that was done intentionally with, you know, the goal to physically hurt me. Mm. But with that being said, I didn't present with any red flags when I went to the doctor. I didn't lose consciousness. I didn't present with anything that would indicate that I had a bleed in my brain. So they didn't take it super seriously, which made me not feel like it was so serious. Mm -hmm. But as time passed, there were significant symptoms of the brain injury. I had debilitating migraines. I had a lot of difficulty with speaking. I would know what I would want to say, but I couldn't get the words from my brain out of my mouth. Oh, wow. I would be I would be halfway through a sentence and completely forget what I was talking about. Mm. Um, I had no depth perception, so walking downstairs was challenging. I don't even think I drove for about a month because my brain just could not process everything that was happening, cars going left, right, um, lights changing. And as time went on, some of the symptoms got better and some of them didn't. So yeah, it was, it affected a lot of different parts of my life right from the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So what actually inspired you to sit down and, and write a book about your experience? So following my assault, I would say that I spent at least two years in absolute denial. I had told my story a million times to a dozen or more different doctors. So in my opinion, like I've, I've talked to this situation endlessly. It doesn't bother me. You know, I'm not being triggered when I'm retelling my story. So I don't have a problem. This doesn't bother me. It's not bothering me. I don't have an issue with it. Mm -hmm. And so about two years after, I found that I was still suffering from horrific night terrors. That was the one thing that had pretty much plagued me from right after my assault. I didn't feel that I was exhibiting a lot of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, even though I definitely was looking back. I just had an explanation for everything and I just refused to acknowledge it. Mm. So at about two years, I finally was able to admit to myself that, yep, okay, I'm suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I started writing for myself as a way to try and process the trauma and the event in itself and just kind of get it out and hoping that by getting it out, I would not be internalizing it as much. Right. And so while I was doing that, I started to become more open with the people in my life about how I was feeling and what I was going through. And I had found that when I was talking to different people, they were able to relate to different aspects of my story, whether it was interacting with a doctor about a different type of invisible injury and feeling kind of 
brushed aside or invalidated or somebody who had a spouse that worked in a first responder type job and kind of relating in that aspect to things that they had seen or were going through. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I found that, you know, with each person I talked to, we were able to just build this connection and relate. So I had really hoped that by choosing to create this book that I would reach others who are in the same situation that I had been in. And it had been a huge struggle for me, especially at the lowest point, because brain injuries are so isolating. Nobody can see them. Nobody has any idea what you're going through, whether it's pain or emotional dysregulation or feeling dizzy or fatigued. Nobody can see it. Nobody understands it. And you feel like there's just something wrong with you as a person. And even if you're trying to recover and doing everything you're supposed to do, you just can't make your recovery happen any faster. Mm -hmm. And it really wears on you. So just to know that, you know, it's not that you're not doing enough. It has nothing to do with you and that somebody else completely understands what you're going through. Um, So that was my goal to just bring some comfort to other people, because that was something that had helped me through when I really needed it. Yeah, it's not something that you're going to be aware of, unless you've been through it. So I think writing a book about it is really a great platform to help other people. Now, how long after your attack, was your brain injury actually diagnosed? Oh, so following the assault, I was initially diagnosed with a concussion. And Time went on and I didn't get better and time went on and I didn't get better. And then it changed to, oh, well, you have post-concussion syndrome and post-concussion syndrome. What they explained to me was you have all of the symptoms of a concussion, but they're lasting for a prolonged period of time Mm -hmm. and there's no prognosis. It could last for days. It could last for months. It could last for years. And there's really nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. You just have to wait for it to go away. That's not a good answer. (laughs) No. And for somebody like me, I, I feel like I'm really proactive. So if you were to have a physical injury, you know, you go to PT and do your exercises and you, you help yourself along in your recovery process. And then to just be completely helpless and not have anything you can do to make your situation better is just the worst, most helpless feeling ever. Mm -hmm. So I waited and I waited, and I waited, and I still wasn't getting better. And this entire time, I'm having the most debilitating migraines from the time I wake up in the morning, nothing makes them better. It was like nothing I've ever experienced, just so much pressure in your head and your face that you can barely even open your eyes, Mm. because it's just so painful. And so I kept going to the doctor over time. And eventually we got to the point where they were saying, yeah, you know, we're getting past the point of where, you know, post-concussion syndrome should be. Mm -hmm. So I had waited out all of their time and then they took another look at me and tried to figure out what was going on. So it eventually took two years for them to figure out what was actually wrong with me. Wow. 
that sounds like a really long time to come to a diagnosis. Um, and, and actually that, along with something you said earlier, actually struck a chord with me about not being taken seriously and feeling brushed aside or invalidated. Um, do you think that being a woman holds significance with that type of behavior from the medical world? So it's funny you mention that because I will say a little something about that specifically. So I thought for my experience that, you know, maybe it's just the region that I live in. We're not known for having great health care. Maybe this is just, you know, based on where I live, this is why it has taken me so long. But on one of my blog posts, it actually references a study where it takes women four years longer on average to receive a diagnosis compared to men. Four and years? That is four years on average. And that's across 700 different diseases and illnesses. And so I was shocked to read that and learn that because I thought this was something that was just really specific to my environment um, and to learn that it wasn't and that it's that significant. I mean, we're not talking a few extra months or even a year. We're talking four years. And mm -hmm. that is really significant. Oh, my God. Yeah, I just I think just hearing that triggered me because I feel like I've been in that position of, uh, you, you know, hey, I'm not imagining this. There is something wrong. Help me. Absolutely. There were times where my, my migraines were completely debilitating and I was losing weight and I was just withering away. And um, my migraine pain was very specific. It was right at the base of my skull um, where, you know, my head meets my spine. And I would go in and I would tell them, I'm having this incredible pain right here. Mm. And I had one nurse say, um, when he asked why I was here and I told him that, you know, I have these migraines and I just want to figure out what's causing them. I don't want medication. I don't want anything. I just want to figure out what's going on because I know there's something physically wrong. Mm -hmm. And he, he responded to me with, oh, you could have a hole in your heart and that could be causing your migraines. Oh. We're, we're not going to be able to figure out, you know, what's causing them. And that was after I just waited three hours in the waiting room to be seen. And now you're pretty much telling me just being there is a waste of my time. And we're not even going to try to figure out what's wrong with you. And I mean, that's something that I still like remember so vividly to this day. It was just such a lack of compassion or empathy because that wasn't the first time I had been there. I'm not having a migraine once a week, you know, over yeah. a couple months, I'm going on years here and I'm suffering. And then, oh, yeah, we're not going to figure it out. Oh, my God. Wow, that's that's terrible. Well, it sounds like you are an incredibly patient person because I feel like I would have reacted with a lot of anger. I, I just can't imagine going through all that you have. It, it really took a toll on me. Um, rather than getting angry, I feel like it wore me down. Mm. I just lost more and more hope. Um, you know, I, it, when he said that I would get angry for a second and want to walk out, and then I would realize that, wow, I took this step to come here just hoping and praying for a miracle that, that something would be done to stop this incredible pain that I was in. 
and you know you just get this realization or this feeling that wow nobody cares and they're not going to do anything and there's nothing I can do to help myself so you just you get more and more worn down and just it it really wears on you yeah how has this experience changed your perception about just about depression and PTSD and numerous other invisible illnesses I admittedly before my own experiences was one of those individuals who thought depression could be prevented by eating well and exercising and going outside and doing all those things that you're supposed to do to take care of yourself and that you, you know, you could manage it on your own and, Oh man, (laughs) I can definitely say that my perspective has changed because when I finally started getting different treatments and going to different physical therapies, I was giving it my all and just putting my all into it. And I could not have done any more. There really is no avoiding or willing your way out of depression or PTSD. You know, it's not a willpower thing or a strength thing, an inner strength thing. You know, it's just, sometimes things happen and you find yourself in these positions and you can do things to cope with the fact that you're dealing with these things, but there's nothing that, you know, completely eliminates the possibility of you experiencing these things. Yeah. And I thought it was kind of in your own control to control whether you were dealing with these things and it, everything that I have dealt with was, largely out of my control. I fought the idea that I had PTSD and I fought it tooth and nail and was in denial. And Mm. you would never, ever get me to admit that I was suffering from that. Because for me, from all of my previous experiences, that had kind of been implied as a sign of weakness. Mm -hmm. And I thought of myself as a strong individual. I'd been through a lot of things. I'd seen a lot of things. And it just happens. I couldn't escape it. I couldn't control that I was having nightmares or that my, my nervous system is in overdrive. It's totally just something innate that has happened. And I definitely have had to, in my own life, come to the realization that it, it isn't anything to be ashamed of. Right. And I feel like the stigma is lifted somewhat compared to, say, 20 years ago, even. But it's still there. And I don't, I don't know how we get past that as a society. But I, I know more people will experience depression in those kinds of, of issues, especially after the year we've just had, you know. Absolutely. This year has been really tough on mental health in general. But I've seen, I want to say even over the last year, different Um, cities and different governments have expanded their benefits to first responders for additional services, whether it be counseling. And just by offering those services, I feel like doing those things is helping to reduce the stigma. Mm -hmm. Um, Just saying that, yeah, you know, we know that your job is tough. And if you decide that you want to talk to somebody, you now have the opportunity to do that. And we support you in doing that. And I think taking those steps by just creating those impressions that 
these are here for you. We know it's tough, you know, anything to help you do your job better. You know, we support you. Um, I think that's a, has been a really great first step that I've, I've been seeing different places take yeah. those steps. Yeah. Well, that's good news. We're making progress. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So talk about recovery. Are you still in recovery? Uh, what were your expectations versus the reality of the recovery process? My expectations. So right after my assault, they told me I had a concussion and a few other physical injuries. And with the brain injury, I expected that I would recover in the same manner as any physical injury. So if you were to break your arm, you have a prognosis, you're in a cast for eight or 12 weeks, you do your physical therapy, you take it slow for a little while, and then you're good to go. You're good as new. Mm -hmm. And so I'd expected, you know, every day I would get a little bit better and just keep making progress toward becoming normal or as normal as I ever was. Um, <laughs> but it was not like that at all. It was initially just a plateau of just pain that I couldn't get past. And anytime I would take one step forward, it would send me into this downward spiral of taking two steps back because mm -hmm. I would push a little too hard and then that would set me back. And I really didn't have any understanding of how you could really overwork yourself when you had a brain injury and how that could really negatively affect your recovery process. Mm. So that took me a little while to figure out. I had to learn the hard way with that, unfortunately. Um, my body pretty much shut down on me at one point because I was just continuing to kind of push it to the max and just force it to heal itself. And it was not having it at all. Right, right. Wake up call from your body. <laughs> it literally was. Yeah. I was listening. Um, but I am still recovering. I have some issues that unfortunately will never heal. So due to the damage to my brain, I now have um, central sleep apnea. Mm. So my brain no longer sends the message to my diaphragm for me to breathe while I'm sleeping. Oh. So yeah, I, I didn't even know that was a thing. But wow. apparently, yeah, apparently it is. Wow. So do you have to use like a, um, a breathing machine or, or anything like that? Or you... Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, when I think about all you've been through, the, the grief process comes to mind because you've experienced a loss, much like a death. I mean, you've lost your former life, who you were. What does that look like? Yeah, there was a huge amount of grief at different stages of my process. When I had hit my lowest point, at first, and I was just kind of losing the will to live, to live how I was living in that constant pain. Mm. I had kind of finally accepted that I had to give up um, one of my career goals. That was something that was really important to me. So I grieved that loss initially. Mm -hmm. So that was my first big deal with grief. And then um, I had a surgery on the back of my head to correct some damage that had come from the assault. And after the surgery, everything was great. I was finally in no pain. 
but I was grieving. It was a huge identity crisis for me because now my body is back how it was before, Mm -hmm. but now I'm not the same person as who I was before. So there's this disconnect about who am I, you know, what is happening here? Yeah. So I had to do a lot of work with coming to terms with not only what I had been through, but how it had changed different things I had aspired toward in my life. Yeah. Yeah. What about closure? Have you had any type of closure with the person who assaulted you? So I was able to sit down and speak with my assailant, which I do go into detail about in my book. And I was also able to speak at his sentencing hearing. Mm. And I never really had a lot of animosity toward this person. There were several underlying things happening at the same time where I kind of knew he wasn't completely responsible. Mm. Um, So that had helped in the beginning that I, I never had this animosity or hatred toward this person. It was difficult for a while to reach that point of acceptance where I've learned that I'm going to be suffering with these things for the rest of my life and there's nothing I can do about it. And there really isn't any justice for any of it. I'm never going to be made whole again. So it's, mm-hmm. there are some times where it definitely made me a little angry and I, I felt victimized and I felt helpless and you know, I did allow myself to feel those feelings because they suck. You know, nobody wants to be put in this situation and have things taken away from them. And then you reach that point of acceptance where, okay, yeah, this is the situation. And am I going to spend the rest of my life holding this anger? Or am I going to take that energy and put it towards something that's going to make my life a little bit better? Mm. And You know, I I try to believe in karma and just everything happens for a reason. And so, yeah, I really hope that, you know, I'm just going to focus on me and try and take what happened to me and put some good back into the world and try and, you know, not let this situation just be in vain almost. Mm hmm. So try and try and make something good out of it uh, and not dwell because it can be really easy to fall into that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Of course, I could never even say how I might react because I I haven't been through it. But my personality, I could see myself just almost, you know, giving up, just wanting to anyway. And I'm sure you had some of that, but you pulled through to the other side. And I guess that's what you have to do. You have to go through all these things. You can't just skirt around them or, or minimize them. Absolutely. And there, it, you know, there wasn't just one time, you know, for one hour of one day where I was feeling a little bit low or a little bit helpless. There were different stretches that lasted months where you, you know, you go to one doctor and they give you a treatment and you're hopeful that it will make a difference and then it doesn't. And then you're back at square one and you have no idea where to go. Nobody knows what's wrong with you. And you go back into that cycle of losing hope that 
you're ever going to find out what's wrong and get treatment and get better. Um, so it's, it's definitely a roller coaster and I was not immune and I let myself feel it and grieve it and, you know, not stay there too long, but long enough where I got it out and okay, what do we do next? Yeah. And just kind of pick it back up. And even if it just lasted for a day and then I got discouraged again, all right, you know, and then when I was ready, all right, let's go and just keep trying. That's just nothing else you can do. Well, one day at a time. Absolutely. So tell us about your support system. What kind of support do you have from your family and friends? I'm very lucky. I have absolutely amazing support. And I will say that it didn't necessarily start out that way. Mm. Um, Growing up, I didn't have a necessarily close relationship with either of my parents. And I had always kind of built up this wall around everyone where I didn't want to let anyone else see me cry or share my feelings with anybody. I definitely wouldn't confide in my parents if I was going through something. And through my experience with brain injury, there were different situations where I had to communicate with my parents how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. And that that just laid the foundation for us to grow this incredible relationship that I'm really, really thankful for. Um, and I found that me being open with my feelings has allowed, especially my mom, my mom is my best friend. Um, it's allowed her to be open about things she's thinking and feeling. And it's helped us both communicate better because that was something we always lacked our whole life was how to communicate. So we've, you know, through my situation, we've grown together and just fostered this really wonderful relationship. That's wonderful. So they've been, it's, it's fantastic. And so they've been incredibly supportive in every aspect of this. Nice. So there are silver linings, aren't there? Oh, it's definitely, I don't want to say it's what you make of it, but there's definitely things that can be taken from these terrible things. And, you know, with all of the health issues that I've gone through and will continue to go through, I feel like I've taught them, like I've shared my message with them Mm -hmm. and they've grown to become more compassionate and more empathetic and less judgmental and to communicate better. And so we've grown together. So it's not just me and my recovery and all of this, it's turned into something where it's kind of spreading to those around me, which has just been incredible. So what kind of reaction have you had to your book so far? I have been really pleasantly surprised about the reactions. When I first thought about sharing my story, I had really questioned if it was worth sharing or if other people would be able to relate and have some benefit Mm. um, from reading my story. And I have been able to connect with so many people, both who know me personally and don't know me personally. And they've each had really positive things to say, whether it's about the way that it's written um, from people who don't know me Mm. and the ones that do have told me that they 
they'll be reading it and going along and they'll be like, yep, that's Darian. And they'll laugh to themselves <laughs> because, because it just really comes across as, you know, how I say things or what I do. So, yeah. Uh, personally, I've really enjoyed that because that was one of my goals that it, it comes across as I would say it. And I've had, I've had a handful of people tell me that, which has been really awesome. And just the general feedback about how um, it's reminded people to be more compassionate or to, you know, not be so judgmental. And that's really what this is about, just spreading awareness and trying to have people who haven't been through this situation give them a better idea of what it's like, especially if they have somebody in their life that's going through it to just increase understanding. And for people who are suffering from invisible illnesses, um, just to know that there's support and that they're not alone in this. And so I've, I've been able to connect with different people and just share stories. And that has been really enjoyable. Yeah, that's wonderful. Now you've been very active in spreading the message about your experience to help others. Uh, but I'm sure COVID has changed some of how you do that. What are you doing now? And what kind of work do you hope to do going forward, assuming we get to some semblance of normal with this pandemic? Yeah, for the time being, I'm really using social media to connect with people. And I've had people that have just seen an advertisement for my book, send me a message, and will communicate about brain injuries and uh, similar experiences. And I've also started a blog on my website that focuses on education, advocacy, and support regarding various different types of invisible illnesses. And I'm hoping to take this foundation and grow. So hopefully when, when life returns to normal, um, to do speaking and talk to people in person and share experiences. Um, because I feel like, especially when you're dealing with not only invisible illnesses, but after the year that we've all had, that human connection piece is just so important. Mm -hmm. And I really look forward to trying to get that missing piece. Yeah, yeah. So what does your life look like now? What kind of goals have you set for yourself? And where do you see yourself going forward? So with my brain injury, I have definitely embraced the one day at a time mantra. Mm -hmm. So I would say that my biggest goal right now is I'm currently in an educational program and I look forward to finishing that. But it might sound silly, but my goals for myself are really small right now. I've been dealing with some incredible fatigue for the last several years and getting some other health issues straightened away has allowed me to address some of this fatigue. Um, so I'm starting to get a little bit more energy and I'm trying to just get closer to living a normal life. Mm -hmm. um, at some points in my recovery, I would have to work myself up all week to go to the grocery store. That was like the one big ask I could do for the entire week. That was all I had energy to do. Mm -hmm. And so now it's 
Can I cook a meal for myself one day a week? Can I cook a meal for myself two days a week? Can I keep up with my house better? So just my daily functioning, um, those are my goals. So I just, you know, in five years from now, if I could cook for myself every night and not be relying on cereal or these other, you know, microwavable meals mm-hmm. because I don't have the energy to, to fix anything else, I would be thrilled with that. Or to accomplish two tasks on a Saturday, to mow the lawn and go to the grocery store, things that a lot of people might just take for granted. But dealing with the fatigue from my brain injury has been really debilitating at different times. So to say that I can accomplish two tasks in one day, that is something that would be a huge milestone for me. Mm. Um, So, so small things like that. Um, Any other really big grand changes would certainly be welcome. But if I can just get closer to normal functioning, that would be more than I could ask for. Yeah, yeah. So I think by setting the small goals as you're doing, I mean, that's, it's setting realistic expectations. Absolutely. And one of the things that was really detrimental to me, that kind of came to my attention during my recovery process was, I had this external goal of what I wanted my career to look like. And so much of myself had been enveloped in reaching this goal and doing everything possible to get to this big thing that I wanted to achieve. And in all of that time, I'm neglecting myself. I'm not happy. You know, the happiness isn't coming from anything internal. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. once I get to this goal, I'll be happy. And so now I'm like, I'm so content just to be here and have made as much progress as I've had. And I don't personally want to go back to having these big lofty goals where I lose that part of myself where that becomes more important um, than everything else that goes into living a happy life, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're focusing on what really matters, and and we would all do well to to live more like that. So what's next for you? Do you have plans for another book? You think you'll go down that road as your journey progresses? I don't have any immediate plans to write a second book. Mm -hmm. But that definitely does not mean that I won't if my journey continues to evolve and I feel like sharing a new aspect of my story would be helpful to other people. Um, And hopefully the same way that this one will be, I will definitely go through the same motions and write another book. But for the time being, in addition to speaking and getting the message out this way, another kind of secret passion of mine is, therapy animals. So Mm. something that significantly helped my recovery was I adopted two kittens from a local shelter and they're my babies. I love them. (laughs) Um, They are incredibly therapeutic and have helped me through a lot. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people throughout COVID with the isolation have found some kind of therapeutic relief through animals. So I plan to spend some time doing that. 
whether it's through organizations that train shelter animals to be therapy dogs for veterans with PTSD. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, so I'm really passionate about those types of things because it's so helpful on both ends. You, You know, you're helping an animal who just wants unconditional love. And a lot of people aren't able to reach the point right away where they can communicate what they're thinking or what they're feeling and they're just suffering silently Mm -hmm. um, with everything that they're dealing with. So being able to bring them some type of relief to help their quality of life get a little bit better is something I look forward to doing as well. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Well, Darian, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing a little bit about yourself and your new book, You've Got Some Nerve. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Darian Plant, author of You've Got Some Nerve. To learn more about Darian and her book, visit her website at darianplant.com. And that's D-E-R-R-Y-E-N-P-L-A-N-T-E dot com. And be sure to check out our other interviews on InsideScoopLive.com. 